Hello and welcome to The Spectator Podcast. I'm Laura Prendergast. This week, Theresa May finally agreed to step down, but is it going to be enough to save her Brexit deal? We also take a look at the government's plans to restrict consumption of pornography and we find out about the Victorian women who travelled the world. So she's finally done it. Theresa May has promised to step down if her Brexit deal passes. But what does this mean for Brexit, the Tory party and the country? Our deputy political editor, Katie Ball, spoke to Jane Forsyth and former cabinet minister Nikki Morgan earlier. So Nikki, this was the week Theresa May pledged to go with a more specific timetable than her previous pledge before Christmas. Did you expect her to make this promise? I wasn't entirely sure that she was going to make it as specifically as she did at the 1922 meeting. I think I knew that she had been told by a number of senior Conservatives that that was the mood of the party. And I myself had said publicly that I didn't think she was the right person to lead us into phase two of the negotiations. But I think it's fair to say with this Prime Minister that until she's actually uttered the words, it's never entirely clear whether she's going to say what was expected. And, you know, we've known before she's going to say something and then actually it hasn't turned out to be you know quite the statement that we had expected. So I think it was a useful clarification, but there's still a huge test, which is getting the withdrawal agreement approved. And James, on that, there was a view that was pushed by some Brexiteers that were Theresa May to signal her departure, then it would help get her deal over the line. Are we any closer, though, to getting to that second phase of negotiations? I think with Theresa May in trying to get this withdrawal agreement through, it has always been two steps forward, one step back. And she's still several steps away from getting it through. So there, there was progress. I think the, the, her commitment that there'll be a new prime minister in place for phase two has definitely won over, according to one member of the ERG who's not won over, about 30-odd Tory MPs. And that's, that's not small. That's almost half the number of people she needs to switch to get the deal through. So the deal has a better chance on that front. But her problem is she still hasn't managed to square off the DUP. And until she does that, I don't think she can get many more than 30 Tory switches. And until she can get the DUP and those the, the Tory rebels right down, then it's quite hard for her to get the Labour MPs that she might need. I also think there was a blow for Downing Street last night in the indicative votes, because it would have suited Downing Street's purposes better for this Norway Plus option, which involves continuing single market membership and thus free movement, to have done better than it did, because the Labour MPs they're trying to squeeze to vote for Theresa May's Brexit deal, they're not worried about a customs union. They all quite want that. So it's not helpful for the government that the customs union is the option that came closest to to winning last night. And James, just on that and the issue of Labour MPs, another a potential problem for the government is Theresa May suggesting she will leave if her deal passes means that we would expect a Tory leadership contest and the expectation is that a Brexiteer would win that perhaps someone like Boris Johnson or someone like Dominic Raab and to many Labour MPs that is a downgrade in the sense that the second phase of the talks would probably lead to a harder Brexit than than they would be comfortable with do you, do you accept that might put them off? Yes, and I think that is why ultimately passing this withdrawal agreement is probably going to accept some kind of amendment, excepting that the Commons will vote on the government's negotiating mandate, which basically says to Labour MPs, you're either going to get all of these things that you wanted guaranteed on workers' rights and environmental protections and the like, or you're going to get an early general election, because I think this House of Commons isn't going to vote for a I don't, think, I don't think there's a majority in this House of Commons for a full-on Canada Brexit myself. And Nikki might mm. 
No, I think I think that is right. And I think, look, one of the things we haven't grappled with at all, actually, is how the House of Commons is going to scrutinise any future trade agreements. You know, it's going to consume us in a way that I don't think anyone has really thought through. And Nikki, on the what a future leader might negotiate, you've previously spoken in favour of a permanent customs union. Mm. You've also were instrumental in the Malt House <laughs> compromise, which saw Brexiteers and Remainers come together, even though it hasn't quite flown with Brussels yet. Um, would you be comfortable with with a Brexiteer taking the helm of the party, someone who has said in the past that they would consider something like no deal? Well, so to bring that down, I mean, I have always been clear, and I think from 2016, that actually it would be much better if we had elected a leader at that point who actually had been pro-Brexit from the start, somebody involved in the campaign. That's why I backed Michael Gove, because I always felt that somebody who was pro-Brexit would then be able to explain to their pro-Brexit colleagues why compromises were necessary in a negotiation with the EU. As you know, that didn't happen. Look, I think I I wouldn't be comfortable if there was somebody who actively said, look, we're quite happy if we have no future relationship with the EU. But I have to say, I think that's unlikely likely. I Look, I, I, I voted for a customs union last night. It's not particularly my preferred option. I'm quite happy with the Prime Minister's agreement. I'll vote for it again, which obviously takes us out of both the customs union and the single market, although I know there's debate about the customs union relationship the agreement might create. Um, I guess the feedback I get as a chair of the Treasury Select Committee, particularly with financial services, is that you know they're sort of slightly standing back. I mean, I think a, a free trade agreement that covered services, I mean, that's a, it's a brave new world. I think they're quite, some of them are quite interested in that. They were actually more concerned, many of them, about the whole EEA-EFTA idea, because you're more of a rule-taker on services there. I mean, all this stuff is flying around. I mean, I honestly think that almost anybody we're going to choose as the next leader is going to bring a new, fresh approach to the future relationship and also talk about domestic policy too. And that's got to be a good thing. And when we look at those indicative votes, James, you touched on those results, but there was no outright majority for any option. As you mentioned, James, the customs union was the most popular. A second referendum wasn't that far away in terms of getting MPs to support it. We know that the the creators of this plan plan to have more votes Mm -hmm. from Monday. Nikki, do you think this is beginning to be the basis for finding the majority in the Commons for something? Or do you think it's more likely that MPs get behind Theresa May's deal? Well, I think we what we need to know, and I think the um, the creators of the, the plan for predictive votes were meeting, you know, sort of on um, on Thursday morning, is whether we're going to see the same options or different options or just the two most popular options tabled on Monday. I do think the Commons is finding its way towards the customs union. I mean, obviously, the Labour Party have got their version of, of that. Are people prepared to move? I thought the second referendum thing was interesting. Um, I didn't support it, but it talked about any withdrawal agreement being subject to confirmation referendum, you know, whether there's a compromise there, which is this particular withdrawal agreement. And uh, because, of course, we know that Labour actually don't have a problem with this withdrawal agreement. It's the next bit not being detailed enough that they don't like. So, yes, we could find our way to that. Undoubtedly, I think for a lot of people, they'll be thinking, well, actually, if the Commons is going to go towards customs union, maybe it's time to get behind the withdrawal agreement. But as James says, a lot of Conservative MPs have now switched to back the withdrawal agreement, some very unlikely candidates. The issue is going to be, if the Commons can arrive at majority for something, which government is going to implement it? Um, Theresa May would be well within her rights to say, you know, sorry, customs union is not on my agenda. I'm not going to implement that. And then we'd be in another sort of you know, big, big sort of, um, uh, you know, set of issues to deal with. And touching on that, James, this is the dilemma which is facing 
ministers, conservative MPs, which is if Theresa May cannot pass her deal, if her promise to leave isn't enough to get enough Tory MPs, the DEP, Labour on the side, and it begins to seem that the majority is for a customs union, there is an argument that the Conservative Party would be better having a snap election than implementing a Brexit, which they think would upset their voter base and go against their manifesto. Do you think that is a, a likely option? I mean, there is a considerable body of opinion in Cabinet that would prefer to go back to the country to have an election rather than accept a customs union. Now, I don't think you can dismiss this argument out of hand because the Tory manifesto on which they all stood was explicit that they were opposed to a customs union. And I think to, to go and negotiate a deal that directly goes against one of your manifesto commitments you know, is obviously suboptimal, to say the least. I think mean, obviously the big question raised about that is could you have a snap election with a leader who is committed to stepping down as soon as a withdrawal agreement passes? I mean, it would be a very, very odd election campaign because although you know, constitutional purists would say, oh, you don't elect the prime minister, you elect your local MP, I think a lot of people would say, well, am I voting for, I'm voting for Theresa May for a few months and then who am I going to get after that? And then, but then you come back to the perennial problem, which is if it isn't going to be Theresa May, who could the Tory party agree on in time mm. before a snap election? You know, I was talking to one minister before Theresa May made her, her commitment to stand down if the withdrawal agreement passed. And they said, look, you know, there is no mechanism mm. for forcing her out if she doesn't want to do it. There is, there is, you know, if she said, I, I want to fight this general election on this cause, I don't see what you could do. One thing that, in the, in, the, in the realms of unlikely ideas but not impossible ideas, one thing I, I keep wondering is whether she could bring the withdrawal agreement to the Commons and say, look, we agree on the withdrawal agreement, but we don't agree on the political declaration. Mm. So what I say to the Labour Party is vote for this withdrawal agreement and we'll have a general election in which we'll debate the future relationship. That's her offer to Labour MPs. Her offer to her MPs on her own side is we're going to use the time it takes to legislate for the withdrawal agreement to have a Tory leadership contest. So you will pick who leads you into that election against Labour and what their position is on Brexit. And this general election is what decides the future relationship because the House of Commons can't agree on that. The, the trouble with that, and I think I can see all of that, and you know, Ryan, look, the way traditionally we resolve impasses in politics is to have a general election. But the trouble is, the country doesn't want to have a general election. There is absolutely no appetite for for people out in the country. I mean, I think Brenda Bristol will be multiplied, you know, sort of a thousand times over, be saying, what, a general election? I mean, that's what these guys are there, is to sort all this out. I mean, the thought of fighting general election on customs union versus Canada free trade agreement versus, I mean, you know, I, I think... Turnout would be very low. And there's also the fact that if you look at all the polls, and we learnt at the last snap election that polls can change yeah, yeah. quite quickly, but the suggestion is you would probably come out of it with a hung parliament or at least a very small majority, which would then probably not solve the problem anyway. Precisely. And I think this is one of the, the, the big challenges, is how do you shift either the parliamentary arithmetic, you know, the, the, the basis for finding a, a way through and, uh, you know, trying to build a, a bit of a consensus and to heal the divisions in the country. I mean, you know, my inbox is divided pretty much into three. 52, 48, no. Well, yeah, kind of, because, I mean, you know, it's it sort of... There's obviously people saying, just leave now, no deal. I've got people saying, for goodness sake, find a, you know, a negotiated way through withdrawal agreement something like the withdrawal agreement whatever and then I've got a lot of obviously people you know make sure that article 50 is revoked or have a second referendum and all the rest of it they are fundamentally irreconcilable views now 
Theresa May has suggested she will go. Obviously, if she fails to pass a withdrawal agreement, we could have her for a little bit longer. But James, when she does go, all the signs so far suggest that she'll be the fourth Prime Minister in a row to have been undone by the question of Europe. Can you see a way forward for the party where Europe won't be the defining issue for the next leader? Well, I think there's probably at least one more Tory Prime Minister is going to be undone by Europe. And then at some point you would think that you would get to a settled relationship and it would it would stop having this effect on the party because there would be a position. This is, this is the issue that most divides the Tory party. And, and the conversation on it is different from on any other issue. I've, you know, Tories are normally a fairly pragmatic bunch, and yet you have people almost kind of readying themselves for martyrdom. It does make people behave in a different manner than almost any other subject. But that is now quite a small group of people. And I think what's really mm. interesting is that we have seen, obviously, you know, splits and differences of opinion on, on all sides of the party on Europe. Um, obviously, you know, on the Remainer side, there's been a difference of opinion between the second referendum and those of us who, you know, came around and said we'll support the withdrawal agreement. You know, the ERG is obviously now split about supporting the agreement or, or as you say, those that call themselves the, the Spartans. What's really interesting watching the conversation now between Conservative MPs you know, in the Tea Room and WhatsApp groups and everything else is that I would have said, actually, things have shifted towards uh, please just get this done, you know, look at the polls, look at you know what might happen if there was a general election in a way that is different even from six weeks ago. So I don't disagree with James's view that the next Tory leader, Prime Minister, you know, Europe, because of the sort of future relationship negotiations, is clearly going to be fundamental. But I do detect now that the majority of Conservative MPs want to move on. And there is a desperation to talk about almost anything else. And bizarrely, we agree on pretty well everything else. So I mm. agree with John Redbird probably most of the times on the economy. I agree with IDS on social justice policy. You know, we all agree on defence and all that sort of thing. We are not in the position that Labour Party's in, but we have got to find a way through this. There's an interesting problem, though, for the Tory Party, because it's got two different questions to answer in this leadership contest, right? One is, who is the best person to negotiate phase two with the EU? And then the other question is, who is the best person to win a general election to deal with, the, the, the you know, to make the Tory party more appealing to young people, other groups of voters they're struggling with? It's very hard to see which person fits both of those criteria. Unless, of course, you end up, that's right, you obviously have to have a leader and a prime minister, but you end up with a sort of a dynamic duo at the top who clearly complement each other, who clearly, um, you know, one's got the detailed negotiating skills. And one of the big mistakes I think Theresa May made was resting back control of the Brexit negotiations so personally and back into to, to number 10. Understandable though that was. But, you know, if you had that duo at the top, um, one very much focused on domestic, one very much focused on, on Brexit, that might be a way through. Have you got uh, any particular pairs in mind, I Nikki? Thought you might, I thought you might come to that. No, no, no. Obviously, Katie, I haven't thought of anything at all. I think, I think it'll, be, it'll be fascinating to see who, who emerges. But I think we have learned a lesson, and certainly from the 2017 election, if you focus just on one person, that is not great. And it's too much on the shoulders of one person. You know, Cabinet is a team, and you need a team around you. And that is what has gone from the pre-2016 Conservative Party. Thank you, Nikki. Thank you, James. That was Katie Balls, James Forsyth and Nikki Morgan. And if you've enjoyed that conversation, you can join James and Katie every day on Coffeehouse Shots, our daily politics podcast. Just go to spectasia.co.uk forward slash shots. Next, can pornography be age restricted like alcohol and cigarettes? In this week's issue, Robert Jackman reports on the government's plans to do so. He says that Whitehall's goal is to create different age verification mechanisms, some of them technological, some of them a little more old school. You'll have to go to a newsagent to buy a pass. 
And the idea of this is that it's going to keep children out of porn websites. But is it going to work? And is it just going to affect elderly people who don't really know their way around the internet? I'm joined by Robert, together with Julie Bindle, feminist and anti-porn campaigner, and Miles Jackman, an obscenity lawyer who specialises in the porn industry. So Robert, can you start by explaining what exactly this porn blocker is? So it's been around for a while. So back in about 2011, 2012, David Cameron started making a lot of noise about blocking children from accessing porn. And I think it's something that seems to have registered as a bit of a, a vote winner. And it's been pursued by the the current Tory administration. There's been a, a consultation. Lots of people have flagged concerns. But Whitehall now says it's ready to go. So they say they've designed the first scheme whereby, with some big caveats, under-18s will not be able to access porn in the UK. And how's it going to work? So this is where the the caveats come in. What I'm told is that essentially the UK government has got it. It it knows which 10 websites attract the most UK traffic. And it has essentially asked them to soft launch. So to, to go through the rigmarole of installing age verification on their own websites. And I think basically the government is going to see how does that work. I mean, it's not difficult to block. You think anyone that's got a cell phone... You know, if you've tried to go on a gambling website, if you've tried to go on a porn website, you'll notice that you're asked to confirm your credit card details to prove you're 18. So in theory, this isn't actually, it isn't difficult to do. But what they're going to do is look at these 10 websites, ask them to install an age filter, see where they go from there. Miles, you're Britain's leading obscenity lawyer, and you've said before that your fight is broadly against the forces which wish to constrain human sexuality. What do you make of this porn blocker? Well, just to clarify, it was supposed to come in on the 1st of April 2018. It's been put off because of significant concerns around privacy, security of data, its effectiveness, whether it can be got around using Tor proxies, VPNs. So it's been put off for a year for practical reasons. This is government, as as we've heard, it was initially a Tory party manifesto promise. And they've translated one line in the manifesto, which was also to be applied to music videos as well as adult content, on what seemed initially to be an easy win because it wasn't going to cost anything and it was going to be shipped out to third-party private sector companies. But there is a question, of course, about whether those people should be censoring the internet or not. So my concerns around it are when it eventually comes in or even if it comes in, because the last thing we heard from DCMS was that it's probably going to be put off till after Brexit. But if it comes in, and this is a perfect example of Brexit politics because no one knows how how it works, myself included, no one knows how it will operate in reality and whether it will be effective. Even its proponents say that at best 70% of people will be affected by it. That means 30% at worst will not comply at all. And very unfortunately, younger people are more likely to be tech literate and be able to obviate it. So superficially, yes, I agree. It seems like a, a very sensible idea for child protection. But when balanced against the rights of adults to uh, access material on the internet, it becomes very problematic. Julie, you've consistently campaigned against pornography. Do you welcome this blocker? I don't think it can work. It's obvious that it can be bypassed. I think that it's warm words and it's the usual platitudes from politicians that really don't give that much of a damn about this vile industry that can clearly not be regulated or regulate itself. It's trying to, I think, 
appeal to people's sentimentality about children as opposed to looking root and branch at the cesspit of the porn industry which is just the sex industry which is prostitution with a camera and you know it's Sorry, it's I not have to interrupt it's not at well, all uh, Julie is a, you know that it, it's, no, I, I mean do. it's a good it's, Actually, a, it's a good argument to say I know that we fundamentally disagree around sex work so we're not going to come to any consensus well, on if, this. If, but if, if, to if call sex... it a se- cesspit can you Substantiate yeah, that? yeah, sure, I can. I mean, I've interviewed a number of women and men who have been abused in pornography, who also, you know, see themselves as selling sex because obviously the profit comes from uh, them being abused on set. Sorry, wait, and, wait, 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 wait uh, I'll, I'll tell you what. I'll, let's 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 do this so that I finish and then you can come in. So what actually happens is that the people who are being prostituted on a porn set have significant mental and physical health defects because of this. We're talking about prolapsed anuses. We're talking about chlamydia of the eye. We're talking about unwanted pregnancy. When we actually talk about it like that, and we know that that is the pornography that we can all access just by actually doing a quick Google, then we know that this is not about the rights of the consumer to view this as though the people involved in pornography are inanimate objects. It's about what the rights are of the people being used and abused in pornography. So whilst I agree with you about sex workers' rights, unfortunately I think Julie and I have a difference about whether sex workers should be allowed to operate and therefore my position is quite clearly that they are entitled to do so and that uh, even if Julie's position is correct, which I don't agree with, the industry can improve the way in which work are treated but to take that I mean I'm sorry Julie um, it just comes across as incredibly judgmental it's a legal industry you have in the past said some things which are simply not factually accurate such as women are prostituted in sex work now sex workers who work in pornography are not prostitutes by law are they Julie and you know that I'm really not following your argument because well first of all let's have a look at the semantics if you, you use the term sex work, which no woman in prostitution that I've ever spoken to, and I've spoken to a hell of a lot, no one ever uses that term. But if sex is work, then rape is merely theft. Then where, where are the... Okay. Let me just finish. Where, sure. are the, where are the careers guidance for girls and boys in private schools? Where are the tips on how to be a quote-unquote sex worker in those establishments where they are enfranchised, well-off white, educated people. We know that that doesn't happen. We know that those that go into prostitution, part of which is, of course, the porn trade, are those with the least choice. Now, my my concern isn't about whether women have the right to do this. I never, ever talk about the rights of the women to do this. I talk about the rights of the pimps, the pornographers, the abusers, the punters. So my understanding is that you come from a radical feminist background, which is essentially exclusory. So your position often comes, from my hearing of it, from a position which says that gay men can't have that kind of sex because that is somehow debasing of them. No, I've now, never said that. Yeah, I've, I've, that, that's come across a lot in your work. Really? That, that, oh, yeah, I, that's, the, that's, that's I've very strong. I've never strongly. written about that. I can't understand where you found that. Um, I, so are you no. saying, can I clarify then, because you're sure. talking about cishet here. So are you saying that queer porn somehow is not acceptable, that ethical porn is not acceptable? Yeah. You're just p- cherry-picking one area which you find particularly objectionable. No, no, no. If you can't 
put that in context of the totality, oh, I, can. I don't understand your argument. No, no, I can. First of all, let's get rid of ethical porn because that is just free range porn that is a accounts for about 0.0.1% of the industry. And this is just a smokescreen. I mean, it's it's so minuscule. Now, if you go onto Pornhub, you are definitely going to have a disproportionate experience in seeing what type of material is available because they want to sell you things. And Julie is right about that. They do. But that does not invalidate the rights of the people who have uploaded their own content to express their sexuality, whether Julie approves of that or not. Well, I think one of the interesting things, the more I looked into this is I think that I think what's quite interesting is you've got websites like Pornhub where you do see the kind of porn that Julie is talking about. And, you know, looking at it makes you feel quite uncomfortable. But interestingly, these websites are the ones that have gone straight to the government and said, we will work with you on this. And I think, you know, there's a lot of people that are making more kind of conscientious or, as they see it, classy pornography. You know, I spoke to two people. I mean, you know, the second of which, the foot fetish stuff, we probably, for a lot of people, wouldn't even register as pornography. You know, there's no penetration. And these are people that take their work ethically very seriously. But, you know, they're really quite scared of this block because they don't know what it's going to do to their business, to their livelihood. I just, I thought one of the interesting things is that a company like Pornhub that, you know, a lot of us would consider... But, you know, distasteful, there's some problematic stuff. There's a lot of issues with copyright on there as well from the, you know, queer community. They seem to be the ones that are playing ball on the porn block. So I think you've got this weird discrepancy where websites you might not describe as ethical in a, you know, to use a kind of upstream, downstream, you know, in making the porn are playing a lot more ethical when it comes to the government. Mars, what do you think British attitudes to pornography are like at the moment? I mean, do you think we're regressing or, I mean, will Britain ever be truly liberal on this issue? One of the problems is that people predominantly don't want to talk about their porn consumption. But MindGeek have said that, based on their own data for Pornhub, they anticipate 20 to 25 million adults signing up to age verification in the first month. That's half the population of the country, adult, obviously. So my point is quite simply that uh, we are much more liberal than we're given credit for. There are clearly forces which are progressive and regressive in this area, and there is a lot to do in the middle ground, which is about stigma, which is very problematic for consumers, for people practising sexuality, for sex workers as well. The entire debate, unfortunately, has a fracture point between progress and regress and Privacy and stigma are very much cracks in that area. But I would say that, broadly speaking, compared to our European counterparts, we are actually quite a sexually progressive country. We just like to pretend we're not. I think it's almost hilarious that the porn industry itself, so Mind Geek, that owns Pornhub and the like, was invited to the table to look at age verification. It would be like getting the tobacco industry to look at how to, um, you know, educate people about lung cancer. It's clearly not a, an industry that wants to regulate itself. We know that the porn industry that bleats on about wanting to make sure that children are not being abused and that they set up, um, for example, an organisation, Adult Sites Against Child Pornography, is funded by the porn industry itself. It's just a smokescreen and, and it's window it's window dressing. And that's why I don't think that this is going to work. Well, but just a final question. Do you think there'll be some people, perhaps young men, who might welcome this block just as a way of slightly kind of making it a bit harder to watch porn I mean it's so easy to watch porn nowadays well, do you think that they might welcome it I mean I, I, of course you've got a lot of people that don't want to see porn but I mean there are blockers you can download voluntarily that will do that you know quite effectively I mean I think when you you know it's been a while since I was a teenager but one of the things I have noticed is that 
there's this sort of stereotype of young teenagers watching porn on buses, and I've I've seen it a couple of times, and they seem to watch it out of a sense of amusement sometimes rather than anything, which I think is 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 problematic, you know, particularly when it when it's porn that involves some kind of degradation, which, like Miles says, is is even if it's consensual or produced for people that would never act like that in their real lives, you know, these these boys seem to find it quite amusing, which I think you know, and that, that's something that we need to counter through sex education more than anything. I agree. Yeah, sex education around consent, particularly around consent. Well, I'm glad we've found something that we finally all agree on. Thank you, Robert. Thank you, Miles. And thank you, Julie. And finally, you've heard of Lawrence of Arabia, David Livingston and Henry Morton Stanley. But did you know that in the peak of the British Empire, women also took on expeditions in foreign continents to explore and travel? In this week's issue, journalist Dee Burkett takes a look at these pioneering women. But, she says, while they may be inspiring, they were anything but progressive feminists. One explorer, May French Sheldon, cut off the feet of a dead Maasai woman just so that she could get at her anklets. Another, Mary Kingsley, dismissed the suffragettes and was actually quite rude about them. So are we wrong to celebrate their achievements? I'm joined by writer and explorer Rosemary Brown to discuss. Rosemary, what did you make of Dee's argument that these women aren't actually feminist icons to be celebrated? I don't agree at all. To me, they are feminist icons. What is a feminist? A feminist is about gender equality. And these women were going against all odds to do the same things that men did, and then oftentimes to do them better under huge, huge breaking conventions along the way. Everything was against them, and they achieved it. And to me, that they could achieve those things in those times when all the doors were shut to them, that, to me, is a feminist. <laughs> and how common was this? Were there lots of women who went travelling, or was it just a handful? There were more than you would think. But no, it was quite uncommon, because it was brave beyond belief. They really had to defy convention. They had to say, I don't care about the status quo. And then often their friends and family were really angry with them, and society in general was angry with them. Mm. Who are your favourite female travellers from that time? <laughs> well, I love them all. But to be honest, of course, the one that I know the most about is Nellie Bly. Nellie Bly was a journalist and an adventurer. The reason that she is well known with people like me, but you probably haven't heard of her, the thing she's most famous for is travelling around the world in less than 80 days. She wanted to travel around the world and beat the record of the fictional Phileas Fogg. And she she took it, she was an, a journalist at the time, she took this idea to her editor, and he said, oh, that's a great idea, traveling around the world and beating the record of Jules Verne's novel, but you can't do it, you're a woman. You'd need, how many trunks would you need to take? You'd have to have a chaperone. There's no way. It's a great story, but I'm going to give it to a man. And Nellie said, that's fine. Give it to a man. I'm going to the competing newspaper, and let's just see who wins this race. So they said, you're right. But they sat on it for two years, the idea. They said, if anybody goes, you go, and gave her two days' notice. They said, they called her into the office and they said, Nellie, can you go the day after tomorrow? And she said, I could go right now if you'd let me. And off she went two days later. Wow. Um, and where did her travels take her? She traveled east. 
So she carried a bag. I've got the bag. It's 16 inches by 7 inches. She put everything she needed for her trip in, in a bag like this. And she traveled alone, no chaperone, and she traveled with one bag. So she went east, I guess, the places that she found most memorable were the places where she was delayed and it was driving her crazy because she really was focused on beating these 80 days. So Sri Lanka, uh, she went to Malaysia, she went to Singapore and Hong Kong, and she had probably the most exciting time in Canton, China, which is now Guangzhou. From there, she sailed across to San Francisco and took trains across America. When she returned, she was a global celebrity at the time. Everybody knew about Nellie Bly. She would have been trending on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm telling you that this is the thing that people know her best by, but the thing that's probably most important to you and me and the readers of The Spectator is that actually she pioneered investigative journalism. Back in 1880s, she had herself committed to the insane asylum on Blackwell Island in New York. She wasn't crazy, but she kept practicing, and she convinced them she was mad, and they committed her, and she saw what was happening in this insane asylum, and she wrote about it. They were so convinced that she was insane, they wouldn't let her out. Joseph Pulitzer of the Pulitzer Prize was her editor. He had to send lawyers to get her out. So then she came out, and she burst it all open, and reforms came about, and the rest of her career was spent on working for vulnerable people, getting their voices heard, orphanages, prisons, sweatshops. And also, she was officially a feminist, and she officially believed in that women should have, a, have the vote. Well, that sounds quite different to Mary Kingsley, who, as Dee points out in her piece, actually said she had no time for women's, women's rights protesters. What did you make of that? I have a very, very high regard for Mary Kingsley, because at a time when women didn't even walk the streets of London alone, she was exploring uncharted parts of Africa alone. And so she wrote a book called, a very controversial book called Travels in West Africa, where she expressed her opposition to European colonialism and championed the rights of indigenous people. That was very, very forward thinking. We do that now, but she was a strong, courageous woman. Rosemary, thank you so much for joining the podcast. And that's it for this week. If you've enjoyed this, please do let us know on the iTunes store or wherever you get your podcasts from. We always like to hear from you. And if you pick up this week's issue, you can read all of the pieces discussed, as well as more from Freddie Gray, Owen Matthews, and we've got Nigel Farage's diary. And we've got a special offer. You can get 12 issues for £12, plus a free £20 John Lewis voucher if you go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Thank you for listening and do join us again next week. Thank you.